Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. If you recall, we began a series called Five Truths That Everyone Should Embrace. I'm sure there are a lot of truths that we should know, but if there are five that are the most important for us to embrace, it would be these five. Because if you take any one of these truths out of this equation, then it has eternal um, uh, consequences for us. And we're right in the very middle of the five. We've already talked about the Bible being God's mind on paper. We talked about God knowing our creator. And today we're going to talk about Jesus Christ knowing our savior and how important that really is. You know, when I was a young person, some of you maybe would be in my same genre. You remember in the 60s, there'd be different hippies that would be around. And for you younger people, you wonder, what's a hippie? A hippie was someone who thought they were hip. And so that's how they were called hippies. It wasn't because they had such big hips. They just thought they were kind of really cool. But some of those guys and gals would carry signs. And on that sign would say, I am Jesus. And they would predict the demise of the world if they didn't get right with God. And so some of them thought they needed to look like Jesus because love was the pervading attitude among our culture back in the 60s. Well, if we fast forward it into our day and time today in our culture, we don't see so many people looking like Jesus or thinking they're looking like Jesus or maybe even carrying signs as much as they did then. But we're also affected by what's going on in the world today because there are people that will tell you that other great people are equal to Jesus Christ. There are writings that are equal or greater than what the Word says. So either they put their religious figure above Christ or they lower themselves to Christ, and so we have a great big problem. It wouldn't surprise me at all, those of you that are listening, if you have not had in the last year someone come to your door and knock on it, we're generally wearing a white shirt and a black tie, and they want to talk to you about their faith and try to get into your head about your faith. Some of you have seen them as they ride their bicycles around the island, and so it could either be the Church of Latter-day Saints, or it could be the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they'd like to come into your life. And some of you are strong enough now that you probably won't engage much in a conversation and you see them often as a nuisance. And I know they can act kind of like a nuisance because they can be a little bit pushy. But remember again that those people that might wear those white shirts and skinny black ties are still created in the image of God and they still need the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and God loves them and so should we. At the same time, though, they really can press you with some questions that if you are not rock solid in understanding what the Bible has to say about these truths, you can get into a quandary where you might say, well, I really believe this, but I don't want to believe what they're saying, but they have now given me some issues that cause me to question my belief. Is Jesus Christ all God? And I don't want to get too polemic on you by throwing out some of the issues that they will raise. It's more important for you to understand that Jesus Christ is God and why that would be the case. And I want to present that to you today. And so you're going to see that quite a lot. So where we're going in today's message is to equip you young people as you now circulate in your schools and perhaps universities. And as you go out in your world and you talk to people, I want you to know we're going to talk about who Christ is, what he did, what he's going to do. And how that all relates to us right now, today. And so you're going to have, a, I hope, a better understanding of who Christ is. From a human standpoint, there's less people today that really will question a historical Jesus Christ. In other words, there are many people today that will now come to say, I believe that Jesus Christ really did exist. 
In fact, if you go to the turn of the century, there was a lot of debate over that. They really put Jesus Christ into two separate camps. They said some people believed that Jesus Christ was a mystical, not a mythical, but a mystical person whom you really couldn't really touch. A lot of mysticism behind Christ. Albert Schweitzer decided to take that on, and I don't believe all of what Albert Schweitzer wrote, but he decided to write a book on the quest of the historical Christ. I don't go to all of what he had to say, but he wanted to put back on the map that Jesus wasn't just a mystical figure, but he was also a historical figure. So today, there are many people that believe in him, just like we would believe that there was a historical Abraham Lincoln, and whether you like it or not, a historical Hitler. But there's a great difference between Christ and these people, Abraham Lincoln or Hitler or all these other people. In fact, he's so different, he's different than any man or human being that there is. And we need to know what that difference is. Just looking at your calendar today, you know that somehow we're attributing to the fact that there was a great man, Christ, that did exist. So there is the historical Christ. Is there some mysticism about him? Sure there is, because Christ is not just a great man. He's not that. He is God himself in the form of a man. And we're going to be discussing that, and I hope that might help you. In fact, Jesus Christ is the personal self-revelation of who God is. In fact, if you'd like to know God, you can look at Christ because God reveals himself to us through his word, yes, through nature, but through the person and the work of Christ and how important that is. So let's talk about that. First of all, who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is God. And I hope that you might take this material and maybe even this outline and share it with those who might question that. There are many verses in Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament, that if you look at carefully, you can extrapolate from it, take from it, that Jesus Christ is God, he's claiming to be God, and there's no reason to question the existence of the deity of Christ. And the passage that Ron read to us is found in John chapter 1, and then verse 1 and verse 14. But I'd like you to have your pens ready, and if you will, open your Bibles, because you often will not have your outlines in front of you, but you might be able to reach and find your Bible. And so I hope you would have it. And as we go through these, you might want to mark your Bible. Take these notes home if you don't have your Bible with you and put them into your Bible so you have a place to begin. So number one, if they begin to question on the uh, deity of Christ, this might be a very good place for you to begin. And so let's look at the verse again with your pens ready. It says, in the beginning, and of course in the context would be in the beginning of the creation of the world, etc. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So you might want to underline the phrase, the Word was with God. So whatever this Word was, this Logos, was with God at that time. And then it expounds on that, and it says, and the Word was God. So underline that. So the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's the mystical part. How could he be was connected to God as well as being God? That's the mystical part, but he was. And then it says, and the word that was with God and the word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. You might want to underline that. So here you have Christ who existed before the creation of the world, was there at the creation of the world because he is God. He now takes on the form of a human being in flesh. So now you have God who became flesh and this flesh didn't exist in some little um, jungle somewhere that this flesh chose to dwell among human beings. And then it says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. That one more time substantiates that that would be Christ. So it wasn't just a good man, he happened to be Christ, who was the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I gave you another verse here where that we see in Scripture another identification of Christ. It says, who, Christ, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Why? Because Jesus is God, therefore he could be God, and he was. He was equal to God. Now let me take you to the Old Testament. This is often used to show again how that Christ is identifying himself with God. 
So you can take Old Testament and New Testament. So first of all, God said this about himself. God speaking, not Christ. And he's speaking to Moses and he says, I am who I am. Implying that he has always existed. I'm not I was or I will be. I am. So it's I'm the self-existent one. I'll always exist. I'm existing forever. I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So you could circle I am. So God is saying this about himself. I am the great I am, the self-existent one. You fast forward that now into the New Testament and you see Jesus talking about himself. And here's how Jesus identifies himself. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, you know that Abraham was before it was mentioned there in, in um, uh, the passage of Exodus. And so now you see here, he's saying even before Abraham, I am. So as God is the great I am, Jesus is the great I am. Just as God is the almighty God, Jesus is the mighty and almighty God. So that's what you'll see in the Old Testament. Now, how does God reveal himself in Christ? It's demonstrated in three ways. You might want to look at these because this is going to show you a little bit more about God because the purpose of Christ, besides paying for our sins and doing his work for us, is also to reveal God to us. So God is a personal being. God is a personal being, which means that if we want to know how God operates, we can look at the life of Christ. We're going to open up a little bit more about the life of Christ to see the character of God in the person of Christ, his love, his care, his sacrifice, etc. So he's a personal being. I think that's very much important because sometimes uh, other religions out there do not portray God or their God as personal. But our God is so personal that he wants to come and dwell among us. And then that same God, our God, comes to live inside of us. So he is such a personal being that he now lives right inside of us. That's how much of an intimate relationship he wants us to have with him. The second is God is love. Now we studied that last week as we were talking about who is God, that God is love. But now love comes with more than just an attitude of love. It comes with actions. It comes more with just a desire to love. It comes with a duty or activity. And so now we see that personified in Christ. We know that Christ loves us. God loves us. But now God demonstrates his love to us in coming as Christ and then going to the cross. So you see God is love, but it takes on action. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now he proved his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. But then the third bullet point is, is God is a personal. He's personally oriented. He's a person oriented. And I think this is important too because... If you look a little bit more on, on our history on this island, you'll find that there was a great deal of worship towards such things as whether it would be the moon or fire or water or shark. Some of you know the history. These were more inanimate objects or things or something that wasn't equal to a human being. And so in this case, he is person-oriented. So God says, I want to connect to you. And the best way to do that is I didn't take on the form of an insect. I didn't take on the form of a monkey. I didn't take on the form of an animal or a, bar or a tree. I didn't take on the form of fire. He says, I took on the form of a human being so I could best relate to you and to me. And so he did that so we can connect to it. And he did it through the person of Christ. Well, there's some more truths we need to learn about the Lord. And so let's talk for just a moment of what he did. Now, for most of you, I know you already know this, but I believe it's good for me to lay a foundation so that you know what you believe and why you need to believe it. So out of much of what's in Scripture, I wanted to give you a little capsule of about six truths about Christ. If you could know six, at least know these six, and that'll help you as you enter into a discussion with others. First of all, he was born of a virgin. 
And you're going to see in Old Testament prophecy a statement that when Christ the Messiah, God himself, would then come to the earth in the form of a human being, he had to be born a very unique way so we would recognize that he's not just a normal human being. And part of that is the virgin birth. Now look at it, if you will. I have the verse there for you. It says, Therefore the Lord himself said, He will give you a sign, something we could see. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now here's what's important, folks, before I give you how it was fulfilled. I am told that in the Hebrew language that this word virgin could easily be translated a young girl or a young woman. So should you bring this out in a conversation with someone who might want to twist you a little bit, they might say, well, there's nothing prophetic about that to say that a young woman was going to have a son and call his name Emmanuel. And you can certainly chase that around to find how Emmanuel is found in Christ in the New Testament and all of that. But there's another way you can do that. You don't have to deny the fact that that could refer to a young woman shall conceive. And yes, young women do conceive. That's what young women do. I'm talking about elementary or junior high, but we're talking about basically those of the marrying age. They will conceive. But what makes this so different is that this young woman, a virgin who would conceive, was conceived because of God. So let's look at that, if you will, at the next reference in Matthew chapter 1. It says, Then Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her. Pause for that and you might want to underline that. Now that concept, did not know her, meant he did not know her intimately. And I believe it goes all the way to full intimacy, and I think you, want to, you know what I'm talking about, to any way that would be inappropriately. So he in no way inappropriately touched his wife, although she was his wife. So there was no form of intimacy with her. He did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. So he didn't have that physical intimacy until this firstborn son was born. So yes, a young woman did have a child, but what made this so unique is that this young woman did not have a human seed planted within her to conceive that child, that this had to come from God. Then it says, and shall call his name Jesus or Emmanuel, and then keeping with the Old Testament prophecy. So again, those of you who are choosing to say, Jesus Christ is my savior, I want you to know that he wasn't just the best historical man that ever lived. He's a supernatural historical figure because he is God in the flesh and he even had his beginning, his humanness begun with something so supernatural as a virgin bearing him. All right, the second that we learn here is that he lived a perfect, sinless life. Now, most of you will hear me say that when I present the gospel, and some of you that will follow evangelical Christianity, you'll hear that he was sinless. But it might help you to know that it's identified very clearly that he was sinless. Now, this whole aspect of the sinlessness of Christ is so rich because it really has its beginning in the Old Testament when it talks about sacrificing a lamb that had to be free from blemish and it couldn't have any parts of its body broken or blemished in any way, indicating outwardly that that lamb that was a symbol of Jesus Christ who would be the lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, that that lamb was without spot and blemish, just like Jesus Christ had to be that way. Well, you couldn't talk about the sin of a lamb because lambs don't sin. Human beings can sin. But they did it outwardly to show that there'd be no blemish. So if I could take it even fuller, further than that, I would say that not only was Jesus Christ sinless completely, and I'll give you some verses, I believe he too was out without blemish. I believe there was not a bone broken on his body. I believe so much so that when they were killing the people on the cross, crucifying them, where they would break the legs of the other uh, malefactors, they came to Christ to break his legs, but found he was already dead. So they didn't have to do that. So no bone of his body was broken. So there was no blemish in him at all, as well as there was no sin in him. Again, he's the only human being that could accurately claim that he was sinless. And let's see what we 
read about that. Look at it, if you will, in your reference there. And you want to flip in your Bible, mark it in your Bible. It says, for he, that refers to God, made him Christ. So God made him Christ. There are God, man, who knew no sin. Now, that's what you want to mark there. He knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, for a moment, look up here. You've seen me do this hand illustration. And generally when I do it, I'm really keying off the fact that Christ is sinless from this passage. So look at my right hand. It represents you and me, okay? And my wallet, again, represents sin. So I have sin on me right here. I am a sinner by nature. I was born with sin. And by that nature, I commit sin. Therefore, I will continue to commit sin even after I've trusted Christ as Savior. It's a part of my nature. Now let my left hand represent God who took on flesh. God is sinless. We know in a moment there that even Christ is sinless because he's God in the flesh. Now look over here. There's no sin on Christ to represent sin because he was sinless. I have sin on me and my sin separates me from a sinless Christ. But when Jesus died, he took my sin on himself. That's why the verse goes like this. For he, God, made him Christ to be sin for us. It didn't mean that that he made Christ to sin. He was sinless. He could not sin. But he was made to be sin for us when he took all of our sin on himself. He died and he rose again from the dead. That was the payment for sin. But that still doesn't mean that I have his righteousness to go to heaven. He was righteous before he took my sin on himself. He was righteous during the point of his death because the sin payment that he made satisfied God the Father. So now he says your sin ticket's paid for by Christ. Now what you need to do is to trust in Christ and he then would give you his righteousness. He is righteous, his sinlessness. Now does that mean I don't sin now? No, I will still sin in my practical state. But because I've received Christ and I'm now in Christ, I've been forgiven of my sin from the sinless one Christ, I now in the eyes of God do not sin the sin that would keep me out of heaven because I've trusted Christ as Savior. Here's another reference. Hebrews 4.15 says this. And it's probably not printed for you, so just listen. It says here, It says, for such a high priest, Jesus Christ, was fitting for us, who is holy. We sung about that this morning. Harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And so another verse says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points, here it is, tempted as we are. Yet, the phrase says, without sin. So even when sin came to him, he could be tempted. But he didn't yield to that. Why? Because he was sinless. So what we know about Christ, he was born of a virgin. Number two, he was absolutely sinless. God is sinless. Christ is sinless. So God and Christ are one. Number three, he performed many miracles. Now, I know you know that, and there are those here now that might claim that they can do miracles. And I would like to submit to you that even Satan can do what are known as signs and wonders. So signs and wonders, I think, are important, and people can do that, and there are others that did it, and those of you that even know the Old Testament, when, the, when there was this competition between Moses and, and Pharaoh's uh, head guys, they were able to do similar miracles. The only difference was, there was a couple of those miracles that Moses' miracle outshined Pharaoh's people's miracles, showing that God had greater miracles. Well, I don't want to get into the miracle issue except now with Christ. Now, when Christ did miracles, one of those is when he healed a lame man, a paralytic man. When he did all of that, he then forgave him of sin. He was challenged by the people who saw them, saw him do that, and they said, how can you do this? You did this, you you healed him of this, how can you do all of this? And he says, "What's, what's more difficult for me to heal this guy or to forgive sins? Well, the response by those people, they were so incensed 
by how Jesus Christ responded to them that they took up stones to throw at Christ when he was now claiming that he could heal this man as well as forgive sins because they saw him claiming to be God. So Christ claimed to be God. Those that lived during the time of watching him do miracles claimed that he was God because he is God. That's just one of many times. So again, he could do miracles to show that he was God. But he also did miracles to show his caring power in response to faith. There are some times when someone just demonstrated faith in Christ as the one who could heal. They had a problem. He then, through their faith, came along and responded to them. Now, again, I believe at that time he was demonstrating the fact that just like God loves people, I love people because God and I are one. We are one in this, and he was healing them. But to me, folks, I believe personally, all those are great miracles, but those are all temporal. The paralytic man still died. I know that. But the greatest miracle that he did is when he died on the cross and then he rose again from the dead. So the greatest miracle is the resurrection, which now leads us to the next point. He died and he rose again. To me, his death is important. I don't want to minimize his death, but his resurrection is essential. A lot of great leaders died, but they didn't come back to life again. And they didn't come back to life and then show themselves alive to others. So it's, it's essential that he had the resurrection and how important that is. Will you will look at that passage I have for you here? It's coming out of Scripture again, claiming about Christ. Paul writes and he says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's important. That he was buried. Why was that important? Because it shows that he died. You don't bury live people, you bury dead people. So it proved that just this Christ, he did die. He was dead, 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 dead. Stone, dead. And then it says, And then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now that's the resurrection. That's the great miracle. That one more time proves that he is greater than any religious leader that ever claimed to be. Whether it's the mysticism of uh, Confucianism and Buddhism, there's no one greater than the person who could die and show himself alive. Now others might claim to do that in another life, in another way, like reincarnation. But none of them could prove that he was God. The rest of the verse goes on to say that he was seen by Cephas, he was seen by the twelve, and he was seen by the five thousand. Do you mind if I share this with you? When I was reading in Corinthians, the question, and here's what's going to happen. They're going to question the veracity of Scripture. Listen to this. In that passage of Corinthians, it says that when Jesus came back to life and he showed himself, he was seen by Cephas. Okay, Paul. I mean, uh, Peter. Then it says he was seen by the twelve. When I read that, do you know what my mind said? There's a contradiction in Scripture. Why? Because if you recall, when Jesus Christ was betrayed by Judas, what did Judas do? Anybody? <coughs> Excuse me. I'm so sorry. <clears throat> What, did, what, did, what happened to Jesus, Judas? What did he do? He hung himself. So now we, one from 12 equals what? 11. Glad I blew that. All right. Now, so I said, wait, said Cephas, and then he was seen by the 12, but there was one missing, so there's a contradiction. That is until you go a little bit further, because when Paul wrote that, saying that he was seen by the 12, remember they had 11. You get to the first and second chapter of Acts, you're going to find that they added one more back into the equation when they brought in Matthias. So by the time they had 11, they added one more, Matthias, to this. Now Paul comes on the scene, and if you recall in Acts, it said that whoever was going to be that 12th apostle to replace Judas... The requirement was that that person had to see Jesus before he died and after he resurrected. So again, it, the equation still fits for 12. So what are we saying again? Jesus Christ is not only God, but you can trust Scripture when Scripture says that he is God. 
So we don't follow a great leader. We're seeing that Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. And when people come to your door, as much as they want to push against you and take scripture out of context, and then once you start getting at them, they lay the Bible down and they go after their own writings. Their writings aren't even inspired by God. And so now don't let them cause you to get to a point where you so much question your faith. Now they may ask you a question you don't know the answer to. But it's our responsibility not to give up the faith, close the book, drop out of church. It's our responsibility to go back to a book that we already believe as inspired of God. And we already believe that Jesus is God. So there must be an answer. We just need to dig a little bit deeper into Scripture because every answer that is necessary to prove the existence of God is found in Scripture. So we see that the resurrection did occur. And it says, and if Christ did not rise, your faith is in vain. It's futile. You're still in your sins. So we know he rose again from the dead. And I'm so glad that he did because my sins are now fully paid for. All right, he also ascended into heaven. So we know that he's born of a virgin. He lived a perfect sinless life. We know that he died and he rose again. He did miracles, but he also ascended into heaven. Now, obviously he had to do that. But let's look at it a little bit further here in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. It says, now when he had spoken these things, meaning Christ, while they watched, they're looking at Christ. He's concluded what he wanted to say. He, Christ, was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Make it clear.